Well, this morning, if you would open up your Bible, we will be in Romans 9:30 through chapter 10. And as we begin, I want you guys to know if there, there is at least one thing that I am guaranteed to hear from my children on any given day. And it's not, I love you, daddy, you're my favorite. It's that little phrase, that's not fair. Whether it's about, a food, about food or a toy, it's infuriating when someone gets something they think they should have. I mean, that's the feeling of fairness, isn't it? At the most basic level, it means someone receives something you think you deserve. Well, our passage today begins with an ironic and seemingly unfair issue. In verses 30 through 31, Paul lays out the situation. Here it is. The Gentiles have attained righteousness from God. Israel has not. Even though they pursued God's law. This is what seems so unfair. The ones who most wanted to be righteous ended up dead in their sins. While the ones who least wanted to be righteous end up holy, blameless, and right. The question of our passage is why? Why hasn't Israel been saved? This is the question of our passage, but it's really a continuation from last week. If you remember last week, we considered whether God's word to the Jewish people had failed. And in that discussion on chapter 9, we learned that God's word hadn't failed because God's people are not based on ethnicity, but based on his sovereign choice in election. Salvation from beginning to end is up to God. And if Paul had left the conversation with chapter 9, it'd be easy to fall into a kind of fatalism, wouldn't it? The idea that nothing we do matters. If God's in control of everything, uh, then there's no reason to do anything. But in our passage today, we discover that while God sovereignly chooses, we also have a responsibility. Paul puts these two truths side by side. God chooses, but you have a responsibility as well. Today, we're going to learn about that responsibility and discover why many of the Jews didn't receive the righteousness of God. We'll find that it's not unfairness on God's part, but rather their rejection a rejection of the righteousness of God. That they were seeking it in all the wrong ways. In many ways, Paul's message to us is a recap of his teaching throughout Romans, now applied to the specific response of the Jews to the coming of Christ. So, for us, it's a cautionary tale. We need to be wary of the wrong ways to pursue God's righteousness. We need to cling to the right ways. And we need to be motivated to share the word of Christ. Our passage is going to teach us about the wrong way to righteousness, the right way to righteousness, and the reception of righteousness. I'm going to read the passage in three sections this morning as we cover each of these three parts. And we'll we'll just stand for the first section. So if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? I'm going to read from 930 through 104. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. 
they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Paul first shows us how the Israelites sought the wrong way to righteousness. Paul paints the problem as though Gentiles and Israel are in this foot race together. We can see this through the repeated language of pursuing as well as stumbling. And then in verse 4 with the end or the goal line of this race. The irony is that the Gentiles who weren't even in the race to begin with end up reaching the goal. It's like if I won the Prairie, the, the Prairie Fire Marathon, right? I didn't go, and I wouldn't have won. That's what's happening here. Israel, though, is tripped up by a stone in their path. Though they pursued the law of righteousness, they have not attained the law, but rather stumbled on the stone of God. Notice, it's not as though you know, Gentiles pursued righteousness and Jews pursued unrighteousness. And the Jews were pursuing the righteousness. It's just that they pursued it in all the wrong ways. According to works. When they should have pursued it according to faith. We'll talk more about faith in the next section. But here we want to explore the stumbling of the Jews some more. I mean, Israel couldn't win this race because they were tripped up on a stone. But what, this is, and this stone is Christ. But what can it mean for Christ to be a stumbling stone? Our family went to Canopolis State Park a few weeks ago and, and hiked, and we tripped over a lot of stones. <laughs> but usually we see Christ as a savior, not a stumbling stone. So which is it? I really like the way Gavin Ortland illustrates this. He says, it, it's sort of like a lifeguard in the ocean. Have any of you been saved by a lifeguard? Don't raise your hand. I hear it's kind of a humiliating experience. I mean, just think about it for a second. To be saved by a lifeguard, you have to stop trying to swim. Stop fighting the water. And just sort of let yourself be rescued. You have to be helpless in their arms. And just imagine if you're at the pool and all your friends are there. I mean, let me put it this way. No one is boasting afterward about being saved by the lifeguard. So is a lifeguard a savior or a stumbling stone? Well, for those who can't submit to the Savior, who are trying to do it on their own, it's a stumbling stone, and they drowned. But for the one who submits, they're saved. The root of Israel's failure is Christ. Their failure to submit and believe in Jesus was the very thing that caused their stumbling. Over the very source... <laughs> I mean, this is the sad story that Paul has to tell. Israel has stumbled over the very source of their salvation and taken offense at what might have saved them from shame. 
Now, their stumbling is, it's all the same, but it's roughly described in three forms in our passage. And these are three forms of their pursuing righteousness the wrong way and serve as a warning for people who desire to serve God. So let's look at these. First, they pursued righteousness by works of the law. Pursued righteousness by works of the law. Paul writes that they pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. They pursued righteousness as if it were based on works. I mean, you have to understand, Paul isn't saying the law is bad, right? We've already covered in chapter 7 that the law is good and helpful. But it's so easy for people to presume upon the law that by adhering to the law, they feel as though, as though God owes them. Now, if you've been in church for more than a minute, you've probably heard that righteousness doesn't come from a strict adherence to the law, but through faith. But I really don't think we can say it enough. Righteousness is not found by excelling in achievement or in religious activity, by a strict adherence to the law. It's found in submission to Christ. So that's the first point. But here's the second. They pursued righteousness through zeal without knowledge. Zeal without knowledge. You'll notice in verse 1 that this conversation, it's deeply personal to Paul. I mean, his prayer and his heart's desire is for the Israelites to be saved. And you know, isn't it true that our prayers so often reveal our heart's desire? They reveal what we truly desire. And Paul connects the two here. And we can understand why. The Israelites are his brothers and sisters. It's painful for Paul to see them reject Christ. Maybe you have people close to you who have rejected Christ. And you know this pain and even the confusion that Paul feels. In this time, Paul models the importance of prayer. That we must go to God in prayer for those who have not yet believed. But now, one of the things that makes it so painful for Paul is that the Jews have a kind of righteousness for God. Look at this. They have a kind of zeal for God, not righteousness. They have a kind of zeal for God. This zeal, what what is it? It's a passionate focus on God, a desire to do his will. They were zealous for God's law, the correct interpretation of it, its instruction, even its growth in the world. I think Paul could relate with this in his own life. If you remember Galatians 1, Paul says he was extremely zealous for the traditions of his father's. This zeal even led him to persecute those who followed Jesus. Their zeal has a kind of commendability to it. But zeal without knowledge is worthless. Zeal without knowledge amounts to not actually seeking God at all. The Israelites were ignorant. What were they ignorant about? They were ignorant about the plan of God in Christ, the righteousness of God. And so their zeal was worthless. You know, I really think this is one of the hardest things, isn't it? I mean, we like to say it's the thought that counts. Those who try hard, even if they're misguided, their hearts are in the right place. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you, as long as you, you know, are sincere and you go for it. And yet, I love the way Keller puts it. He calls zeal without knowledge fanaticism, even terrorism. He says, imagine a lady who loves her neighbor 
and sincerely brings her a big bouquet of flowers, not realizing her neighbor is desperately allergic to them. That's zeal, but a zeal without knowledge. And it could be fatal. It's okay to be zealous, but you can't separate it from the knowledge of the truth. There are a lot of zealous people out there, friends. Many who even show a zeal for God. But don't ever confuse zeal with faith. Zeal does not prove the genuineness of faith. Truth does. Zealousness without knowledge is the wrong way to righteousness. Now, you might be thinking, uh, you know, if they're ignorant, how can you blame them? Well, Paul continues in the next verse. He connects this ignorance with the last wrong way. Israel stays ignorant, not, not because they haven't heard, but because it suits their own way. So this third wrong way is pursuing righteousness by establishing your own. I really think each of these wrong ways are kind of building on one another and and really summarized here in this verse, verse 3, where they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. They did not submit to the righteousness of God. Paul means at least two things when he talks about righteousness their own way. He's referring to the way any individual might be attempting to establish right standing before God on their own effort, whether it's obeying the law, zeal, accomplishments, achievements, things like that. But he's also referring to them corporately, as we've seen, as if their own way is a righteousness belonging to Israel and Israel alone, simply because they're Israel. Paul is calling out their self-righteous acts as well as their national or ethnic righteousness, as the wrong way. Righteousness isn't based on what you do or who you are. And all of this is in contrast to submitting to God's righteousness. Notice this. And this is the thing that the next section will will outline. What does it mean to submit to God's righteousness? The Israelites failed to realize that God wasn't looking for perfect people. He was looking for humble people who would submit to him and his ways. The section closes with verse 4, as Paul explains the reason their paths were so wrong. You see, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The root of their problem is Christ. But here's the thing. He's also the goal they didn't know they were looking for. Christ is the end or the goal of the law. Christ is where the law was pointing the whole time. And because he has now come, the law is no longer the main way that you relate to God. If you really want to follow the law, you'll believe or have faith. It's it's the the same word in Greek. Believe or have faith in Christ. Which is where Paul turns next. The right way to righteousness. Look with me at Romans 10, 5 through 13. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For, the, for, the, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's remarkable. Now, verses 5 through 8 are some of the most difficult to explain. But at their core, they are communicating to us that the, righteous, that the right way to righteousness is anticipated in Scripture. Right? It's anticipated in Scripture. Paul is linking together all of these Old Testament quotations. If you remember in Luke 24, we learn that all Scripture is concerned with Christ. And that is what Paul is putting on, in, into practice here in this passage. Paul is interpreting the Old Testament in the resurrection light of Christ. In verse 5, he quotes Leviticus 18.5, but I really want to focus on verses 6 through 8, where Paul quotes Deuteronomy, sections of it. Interestingly, though, Paul says it's not Moses speaking, right? Uh, But righteousness based on faith is the one who's speaking. He personifies righteousness based on faith. Why does he do this? Because Paul is wanting to tell us what faith knows. When faith reads the Old Testament, what does it know? What does it see? And so he's quoting from Deuteronomy 30. Now, if we go back, we were to just look at Deuteronomy 30, mainly verses 11 through 14, we'd see that here the Israelites are being told that the law or the commandment isn't too hard. It's not too hard for them. And it's not too far away. It's not like they have to go and get it. It's, on, it's in their hearts, been etched in their hearts, and it's on, the, uh, on, on the, the lips of their mouth. God has brought it near to them. But in this quotation, in Romans, it's not about the law, but about Christ. As he quotes the Old Testament, he removes the language of commandment and inserts kind of in those parentheses, Christ. He essentially swaps the law for Christ. Why? Because faith knows something. Faith knows that the gift of the law is fulfilled in Christ. And so if the gift of the law is fulfilled in Christ, it's legitimate to do this. Faith knows that we don't need to do anything or to have right standing before God. You don't need to scale the heavens to satisfy your sins. You don't need to go down to the depths to bring Christ up from the dead. God has already done it through Christ. God has already done it. You don't need to go anywhere because the word is near you. The word of faith in Christ, the righteousness of God, is on your lips and in your heart. How is that? He's going to tell us here in these next two verses, in verses 9 and 10. The way to righteousness is faith in Christ. Paul says this word of faith in Christ is twofold. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If you want to know how to get right with God, there is no better place to look. Yes, God is sovereign in salvation, but each of us have a responsibility to receive Christ through faith. Confession and belief. Now, it's not as though these are two separate actions or that there's some order to them. That's not what Paul's trying to get at. I mean, actually, in verse 10, he, he restates verse 9, but he does it in such a way to show the parallelism between the two. There are two sides of the same coin. 
confession and belief. At the same time, they each draw out something unique for us. And so let's look at them a bit closer. First, faith is confessing with your mouth Jesus is Lord. So we're going to do that, all right? We're going to go ahead and make that confession together right now, all right? On three, we're all going to say Jesus is Lord, right? One, two, three. Jesus is Lord. All right, you're done. Woo! I do that because throughout the gospel, this is this short phrase. It's one of the shortest phrases that points us to the good news. Jesus is Lord. It's, it's like a little suitcase that encompasses the whole gospel message. Jesus is Lord. But the first thing that we recognize in this passage is that to confess Jesus as Lord is to say that you are not. Which is the direct contrast to the Jews who would not submit to God's righteousness. It's to say, Jesus is the true ruling king of the universe. God's divine son. The one to whom I submit my allegiance and my my very being. But also confession with your mouth. It's a very physical and a public thing. Our faith is not something we only believe with our minds. It is something we demonstrate publicly in our lives. Second, faith means that you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now, you might think this is saying all that matters is Christ's resurrection. But to say that Christ was raised from the dead is to say that he died. In fact, the resurrection elsewhere, the resurrection proves that Christ's death worked, that it's efficacious to cover our sins, to win victory over death. So to believe Jesus' resurrection is to believe that he died for your sins and promises eternal life, and that he was raised. It is not a vain belief. It is not a fruitless belief, but it is proved. For he raised from the dead. Was raised from the dead. And Paul centers this whole thing on the heart. (laughs) Because throughout Scripture, the heart represents the very core of a person. All of you. Your mind, your affections, everything about you. Faith requires all of you. Your will your allegiance, all that you are in submission to the resurrected king. Have you confessed and believed? The way Paul describes faith, it is the simplest thing in the world, isn't it? Confess with your mouth and believe with your heart. Faith is the simplest thing in the world, but it's also the costliest. Paul is not peddling some easy believism, There's no separation between belief and discipleship. Where all that matters is getting people saved. Have them say the right prayer, the right words, so they'll be right with God. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. But writes that we are called to something more. That faith is a costly grace. As he writes this, he said, It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. And it is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. Christ Friends, is the only way to true life. 
Romans 10, 9 and 10. It's one of the best explanations for what it means to be a Christian. I hope this is underlined in your Bible, you know, dog ear the page, whatever it might be. Someone who professes to live in submission to Jesus as the crucified and risen King and believes that God has worked in Christ to bring about grace, forgiveness, and eternal life. This is the right way to righteousness because righteousness comes through Christ and Christ alone. Paul then moves from here to address who this faith is for. Now, this, the right way to righteousness is available to all, he says. It's available to all. And if you were here last week, you're probably thinking, are you sure? <laughs> I thought salvation was limited just to the elect. Isn't that what we learned from chapter 9? So how can it be available to anyone? Well, Paul's doing at least two things in this verse. First, it's clear. Paul is wanting to show that salvation isn't dependent on being a Jew or a Greek. It's for those who have faith. So no matter how, so I want you to know, no matter who you are, no matter what you've been through, no matter how different you feel, no matter how worthless or how worthful you might feel, salvation is for you. Salvation is for you. And this statement, it actually lays the groundwork for some of the commands we're going to get later in his book about how the church lives together. It's based on this. Salvation has come to all, Jew or Greek. But secondly, Paul is saying that individuals have a responsibility to respond in faith. It's true for each one of us. And it's also the perspective that we should have toward others. I mean, I want you to get this. Paul is getting ready to tell us, to tell his readers, to preach the word. But you can only share the good news if you believe people can receive it. From our standpoint, we don't know who's elect and who isn't. Our job is to call people to faith. And that's where Paul turns in our last section. The reception of righteousness. Look at Romans 10, 14 through 21. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they, of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. In the first part of this section, we have Paul sort of reverse engineering 
those who come to faith. Got a lot of engineers here, right? Maybe you can relate with this. He's working backwards. He's thinking out loud. All right, how do people come to call on Christ? Well, they got to hear it. Uh, but to hear means that someone brought it. Someone communicated with them. Someone was sent to them. Someone took the initiative. Quite simply, Paul is telling us this. We need to share the word of Christ. We need to share the word of Christ. The only way people are going to have faith is if others spread the news. Last week, Lucas shared with me a remarkable story from one of our mission partners, Sat7. This is a, a digital uh, radio organization, a digital and radio organization that brings the gospel to unreached groups, places you just can't get. Recently, a man in prison was watching some of their programming. And as he became more interested, he reached out to them and was like, I'd love a Bible. And like, we can't send you that, but you can listen to it through, through our resources. So he started listening to the Bible through them. And when he was released, Set 7 connected him with a pastor who shared the gospel with him. And the man now believes. I mean, people hear and believe the word of Christ. Do you, do you realize? Some, sometimes we don't feel this. But people hear and believe the word of Christ. Isn't that great? And this isn't just the work of official missionaries. It's the work of anyone who knows the truth. We are each called to evangelize. To call up the people. To call people to a life of faith. I mean, look at this. I want you to notice with me what Paul says about evangelism here. One, it's necessary. Right? People got to hear it. Evangelism is necessary. It requires speaking. It requires words. And it's not just, it requires not just speaking, but a kind of persuasion or helping people to understand. Helping people to understand what they hear. And then fourth, it takes initiative. Whether you walk across the street or go 2,000 miles, initiative to go to someone. Paul says how beautiful, how beautiful are the feet of those who take this initiative. Those who bring the very fragrance of Christ to others. And yet, not all have recognized this beauty. Which is the second point in this section. Some believe while others reject. This is the situation Paul now faces with Israel. In verse 16, Paul is saying that the Israelites have not obeyed the good news. What was lacking? Faith. Faith in Christ. In verse 18 and the following, Paul strings together some Old Testament quotations. Because he wonders, is there, is there any excuse? But he finds that there is not. The Israelites are without excuse. Have they heard? Yes. Have they understood? Yes. Verse 19, it's kind of doing this inferring thing. The Jews understand because even the foolish Gentiles get it. They did not obey the gospel. Why? Our last verse tells us they are a disobedient and obstinate people. The Gentiles get it. Many of them are coming to the faith. But not so for the Jews. And yet God's word has not failed them. God's word has not failed the Israelites. Rather, they have rejected it. The truth is, 
not everyone will respond positively to the gospel. In this passage, we are presented with two truths. Everyone is responsible for how they respond to the word of Christ. And every believer is responsible for sharing the word of Christ. But sharing doesn't guarantee success. The response of the Jews shows us that even those who were raised in the word of God can miss it. You could grow up in church your whole life and still not confess Christ. I know many of you feel this burden. You have friends who aren't believers. You have adult kids who want nothing to do with Christ. And this burden can feel so heavy. That's why I want to end our morning with the picture that Paul paints in verse 21. Look with me there. Here Paul gives us, the, gives us God's perspective on the Israelites. God says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. All day long, I have held out my hands. When I read this, I can't help but think of the father in the parable of the prodigal son. All day, he waited for his wayward son to come home. And when he did, the father ran into the field to embrace him in his arms. And not only were the father's arms open for the wayward son, but for the older brother, who was resentful that his younger brother was welcomed back so easily. The one who thought his father was being unfair. Who thought he deserved more for everything he had done. Who put his worth in what he accomplished. And yet, who was left standing outside the feast. But the fathers are open wide. They haven't closed. They are open for the wayward and the obstinate. For the sinner and the self-righteous. The Father's arms are open to receive those who once rejected Him. To receive anyone who would call upon His name. The Father hasn't given up. Neither should any of us. The Father's arms are open to each one of you. May you cast everything aside and run into them. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, your, your mercy, your love for us is unending. It is remarkable how you never give up. Even when we reject you, your arms are open wide. May we trust in the open arms of God this morning. May we also hold to our confession and belief. May it motivate us each day to live lives in submission to Christ. That you are Lord and we are not. And so we submit our lives to you each day. And Lord, may may this confession not just be in our hearts, but may it be on our very lips to go and spread your good news with boldness and confidence. That your news may bring new life. The word of faith to those who do not yet know. That in all things Christ may be glorified. 
that in all things Christ may be glorified, and in, in whom we pray today. Amen.